I'm Matt Bergman, and you are listening to the Punk Rock Libertarians podcast, episode 268. I'm here tonight with Jared Schneiderman. What up, guys? Alex Miller. Hey, how's it going? And then we've, we've got two first-timers on tonight. We've got Craig Shute. Hey, guys. And we, hey, Craig. And then we've got Mike Shipley. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Wow. This is this is fun, man, because it's like, uh, I don't know. I'm just like excited about the, the podcast tonight. I think we're going to have good times. Hell yeah, bro. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mike Shipley. So you're actually right now you're in the process of running for um, to be chairman of the Libertarian National Committee, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, um, like, how how's that going? Do do, do you think like Austin's going to happen? Um, I don't. I don't know if Austin's going to happen. The thing with the bylaws is more or less that like. I've heard about this idea where like, according to where the bylaws are in relation to Robert's rules is that like, technically we have to call a physical convention to order in Austin. Um, and the awkward thing is like, what they could do is they could pass a bylaw that like suddenly allows an electronic meeting. Um, but the big problem with that is anybody who with even like an ounce of foresight is going to recognize that anyone can show up and be a majority and do kind of like a runaway convention thing. Um, which is, would be nice to believe that we're all, you know, acting in good faith or whatever, but mm. the reality is we're humans and this is politics and that doesn't always happen. So, um, the sort of the wise thing to do is show up anyway, just in case so that like, nobody has that majority so i don't know what people are going to decide to do in terms of like balancing um personal responsibility with um sort of tactical um you know wisdom but if the lnc is i i would like to think that they could find a way to make it a digital convention. I was looking through the bylaws and it just says there are some other ones about electronic voting that would be a lot harder to kind of read into. But as far as like convention, it just says it has to happen in a time and place decided by the LNC. So like Zoom is a place. So I'm not saying they should like, you know, try to bend every word in the bylaws because that's a bad idea too because then someone just challenges it and then we're like back to square one right plus with a you know scandal on our hands so the answer is i don't know because they have kind of all the control over that right now but um one of those many things will probably happen hmm. and when so, will we when will we find out what it, what is going to happen um i have to check my not even sure if I put that on my calendar. I think it's pretty um, it's pretty late though, right? I mean, we're already like what three or four weeks out. We are, and they scheduled another one of their digital meetings, and that's what I'm, I'm kind of scrolling. It looks like I think I was on mobile when it happened, so I didn't. I need to put it on my calendar. Um, but there's another one of their like digital Zoom, like they did one about ten days ago or so, and I I don't know that they're going to make the decision that day, but. Um, it would be nice to get a decision soon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, like, what would you say for like you know people that are going to the going to Austin or people that are delegates? Like, why should they pick you for LNC chair? So, here's the thing. Um, I do really well when people get to meet me in person. And now that convention season has been cut short, um, I don't know that I can sum that up in, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. Um, the landscape is different for me now. Were, were um, you going to do like handies at the convention? Or like, <laughs> what is it? No, like I'm a really lovable person, but you don't get to like find that out until you meet me like in real life. Um, but it's not my lovability that should make me chair. It's that I'm actually committed to the principles of like a bottom up world. Um, you know, the power should be held by the individual. It shouldn't be held by a group of elite people who make decisions for us. And what I'm seeing with the LNC, like over a long term period, like there's been like a slow grade scope creep. 
And now that we've had like a really super popular chair who has served like three terms in a row with like this huge mandate, hmm. um, there's kind of like a sense of almost entitlement growing in that spot to where the figure of the chair is taking on this like mythos that is, in my opinion, kind of dangerous because it's, it's leading to this condition where um, we believe that the chair should have all the answers and nobody could ever measure up to Nick, right? And um, when that single position takes on that sort of um, like aura where no one can fill it, um, we start to like gravitate towards these powerful figures like um, to fill that spot, you know? And would you say that you're the man to fill this gaping void? <laughs> but dude, I'm the question. I'm gonna yeah, no. Actually no. <laughs> but what I can fill is the gaping void left by a, like a person of principle um in that spot. I think So that, you don't you don't think uh Nicholas Shark Week has the principle? I what I think is that power corrupts and mm. such as it is even in a third party with very little power and that is theoretically bottom up three terms is a long time for any human being to be in uh, you know a position of privilege like that and mm. the nick that exists today is not the nick that i voted for in mm. the past and it's different now and i think um in order to avoid replicating that, I don't think the outgoing chair should like handpick the incoming chair. Like that's kind of a startling development. Yeah. Um, Are you associated with a particular caucus? No, not in terms of this race. Um, in fact, I've been kind of, it's hard for me because a lot of my responsibilities and the way that I built my reputation has been through caucus organizing so like i'm simultaneously like pointing to that experience but also saying you know the chair of this party has to represent every person like i'm really committed to those values and my bottom up or the the bottom unity narrative has really i don't know it has changed me too it changes the way i think about factional loyalties and and all of those things right like they just feel less important because it's so much more important to um, have this anti-authoritarian alliance like ultimately the state is our enemy and each other is not so um, I'm going to answer no but we live in the real world you know I have roots in some of the caucuses for sure <laughs> um, but I'm not there to um, kind of advance any specific caucus loyalty or interest yeah I have to say Mike that's one thing that um like about to. I'm a big fan of the bottom unity and uh, find myself getting equally frustrated by both sides, whether it's left or right, that disagree with that. Because um, um, like if you put these principles first, the libertarian part, or in my case, the anarchist part, should come first before the ANCAP or you know left lib. So I don't know. I'm glad there are other voices that are saying that. That actually yeah, leads yeah. to uh, we had a we had a list. Well, I mean, question. I wasn't done because you mentioned uh, bottom uh, unity. You mentioned yeah. bottom unity. Like, how would you explain like bottom unity for somebody who's like, what's bottom unity? Like, explain this hashtag. Well, the latest <laughs> way that I've been describing it is as a single issue alliance on anti-authoritarianism. So that's of course a very political way of, you know, anti-authoritarianism. You have to apply to every issue, so like it ultimately ends up being. Um, a new reframe around, you know, the old idea of being a principled libertarian, right? Like, um, but there are so many different flavors of, of anti-authoritarianism. So I think that's enough to like put us all on the same page and also orient us. I'm using like plural pronouns. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to collectivize you. If you're not on board with that, it's cool. But those of us who identify as bottom unity, anti-authoritarians, like, orienting us against the actual top, if that makes sense. So with, if you're, um, if you would define it as the, the broad single issue of anti-authoritarianism, I mean, is, is that, I think a lot of people, when they talk about authoritarianism, they talk about like a dictator or there being a lot of power vested with one uh, person. So would you be, I mean, is it basically just being satisfied with 
more of a democratic uh, choice of of how things are going to be run? Is is that a big part of it? You could say that if, if that was the language that came naturally to you, if that's the vocabulary of your anti-authoritarianism, um, I think in terms of the party in particular, we define what counts as unjust authority in terms of the non-aggression principle. So the easy answer would be to kind of go to that. Um, some of the anti-authoritarian ideologies are much pickier about the kinds of authority we submit to, let's say, right? So um, some of us take that critique and we apply it to the workplace or we apply it to, um, you know, the, vol the volunteer organizations that we work with. Um, we apply it to our social constructs like gender. Um, and so I would think all of that would count and everyone has a different I guess, tolerance for what they're willing to consent to and under what circumstances. But um, for the purposes of the LP in particular, I think I would look to the non-aggression principle for that. So yeah, uh, related to that, we did have a question from, uh, from a listener. Uh, Derek asks, how do you reconcile bottom unity with your rejection of private property rights? And how could that sort of divide between the different philosophies be bridged? I'm adding well, the second part. <laughs> I'm glad you asked, um, because I think there's a misconception that um, rejecting private property is about rejecting the concept of property. Hmm. So for left libertarians, private property is a legal term. So we're talking about the ways that the state decides what counts as property mm -hmm. and then makes arbitrary choices about whose property gets protected and why, right? So when a left libertarian is rejecting private property, um, what we're really standing up for is the importance of justly acquired property outside of the state sanctioned controls over what counts as that. Okay. So I don't think there's a disconnect. I think like it deeply matters that the fruits of one's labor remain with the one who does the labor, right? Like that's a really super important principle. That's the entire frame around um, the worker, let's say, right? It's that, when I take a raw material and I turn it into a finished good, then that property represents um, an aspect of, of my being, right? It's a product of my time, my talent, my energy, and it now belongs to me. And so you're, kind that, of talk, you're talking about like the Marxist uh, labor theory of value, right? No. No? No. How is this different? Well, what I just described is the labor theory of property, and it really comes out of classical liberalism. Okay. Um, to be honest, I don't really understand the labor theory of value. It's very 19th century to me, which I know makes me not the best mutualist ever. But like, I live in the 21st century where subjective theory now exists. So, so you, you do buy into the subjective theory of value? Um, or you not to the point that I like theory monger people about what they should think because. Well, I'm not, you know. I'm just saying, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying, like, I, do you buy, like, do you agree with that? Do you think that theory is valid? Do you think that theory Jerry, properly... you need to just stop theory mongering, bro. <laughs> well, no, but I mean. Do you I think mean... that theory properly explains value or at least does a pretty good approximation of how value it, is derived? For me, it's the frame that resonates with me because okay. if trade is mutually beneficial, then that implies to me that it's a bilateral negotiation. It sure. me that necessarily implies that there are two sides coming to an agreed upon price. And so um, that's pretty much the core of subjective theory. So, yeah. so what if it's okay. a price for labor? Like what if uh, a, a person who owns something, owns some resources, uses some money to buy like a whiz-bang machine that increases worker productivity and they contract with a bunch of workers to pay them a certain amount per hour. But I think what you're saying, maybe I misunderstood you, what you're saying is when they produce in those conditions that the produ production that comes off the line really belongs to them. So how do you, how do you reconcile those two uh, ideas of the, the owner's right and the worker's right? Um, 
Well, for me, I don't necessarily try to quote reconcile them because they can't really like both exist in the same structure. Right. So um, if I'm going to sell my time by the hour, um, then I'm going to be in a workplace where like that's the norm that we're going by. So at that point, I'm negotiating a value for my hourly time. And that's going to be like a subjective negotiation. Um, but if I'm going to participate in a cooperative, then I'm going to already know going into that, that um, it's a different paradigm. And yeah, that's the paradigm that makes sense to me. In fact, so you're saying you have a preference for a worker owned co-op or something of that nature, as opposed to the, the typical sort of hierarchical structures that we have in most companies currently um it resonates with me more on a principled level yes okay i mean i think a general skepticism toward wage labor um does make sense from a principled libertarian standpoint because if you look at the history of how it came about you know the rise of industrialization and uh started in england you know at first you know you had all these agrarian workers who you know they weren't used to punching clocks and you know a lot of these factory owners they actually had trouble getting people to fill the factories and a big part of what got them their workforce was this continuing enclosure movement kicking people off the land driving them into the cities and now with um <clears throat> how was that how was that done was that balance of power like setting terms of employment and you know that uh heavily into what we now know as wage labor. So I'm not saying that I think wage labor has zero place, but I understand the socialist critique of that it might not be the dominant one. And ultimately, I don't know, but they might be right. And I don't find it threatening to like question it as the, as the, the norm or the dominant paradigm. But if you talk about living in the 21st century, I mean, was the enclosure movement, what, in like the 1600s? Yeah, there were rounds of it, but yeah, I mean, it started from even earlier, you know, Henry VIII. What is, what is the enclosure before. movement? Hmm? What is the enclosure movement? Uh, it was when, um, uh, basically the king or parliament in charge uh, confiscated, I think it was up to, I want to say a third of all the land in England, um, and said, this is ours. Um, if you're here, you now must rent. And if you can't rent, get the fuck off. Um, go to the city, work in the factory. Maybe they'll have jobs for you Did there. Did the same thing happen in the United States? Because um, I was under under the understanding that most people sort of voluntarily, before, in a sense, moved from the... the United States. What's that? This was before the United States. Well, I, I mean, I, I understand the 1600s before the United States, but uh, I'm saying <laughs> did it happen... Jared. <laughs> I'm saying, did it happen again to during the industrial revolution, or at least the modern industrial revolution, where yeah, people I mean, voluntarily kind of went from their, or from what I understand, yeah, I mean, people voluntarily, or they were forced by their predicament sure. to yeah, I mean, go you to could the city. Something like Shays Rebellion, you know, um, uh, as an example. So after the American Revolution, the people who signed up to, you know, fight for the republic against uh, the monarchy. Um, they, part of that contract is they would get paid, which, whatever. Um, at the end, in the Articles Confederation, the government said, oh, we don't have the power to tax, so we can't actually give you money. But since you've been fighting, your farm wasn't productive, you couldn't pay whatever bills you had, and now you're getting kicked off. Um, so, and then rather than say, hey, to the, you know, the, the workers, the people who fought and owned the, the farms, rather than, hey, lean on your side to say, hey, here's, you know, the back pay that you were owed. Uh, the judicial system and executive branch sided with the uh, the creditors who said, hey, these people who weren't earning money on their farms and were fighting for the public, whatever, um, they owe us money for whatever reason, because some of them didn't own the land outright. And so the state was siding with landlords rather than the tenants, workers or small property owners. So, mm. um one small example, um, you could probably pick at it a little bit, but uh, I would say if you want more examples of that, just Howard Zinn is a, a great resource for all, all the ways that the state colludes with um, 
with big business to mess with people. Is that so, is that in like the history of what is it? The history of the people or whatever? Also that, history of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So the, so, I think yeah. the takeaway is that like feudalism morphed into the modern, I'll just call it the modern command economy to bypass giving it a name, but um, it never really went through any kind of an idealized, like completely free market state. So um, trying to kind of acknowledge that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the bottom line is that there was never a time when the invisible hand created what we have now. It was an unbroken chain of, of events um, passing through the hands of different authoritarian figures. Yeah. Sure. So, so uh, Mike Shipley, earlier today, you called me vile and reprehensible. <laughs> oh, here we go. I, can, <laughs> I wish there were stronger words because those are an understatement. <laughs> Ouch. Like how how so, dude? What I just you guys are fun to like be kind of like mean. We have like this cool like, frenemy thing, and okay. I just like it. Okay, so, <laughs> so you're saying I've been mean? Oh, vile and reprehensible. I, I, you've been you've been mean than I've been, dude. <laughs> what? Why is that a bad thing? Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I, I, I mean, honestly, dude, I have fun. I, I think I, I might have even been the person that asked you to come back into the group. Uh, maybe, but I do what I want. So <laughs> I'm, just saying, I, like, I'm just saying I asked you to. I didn't, I'm, I didn't say I told you to. <laughs> uh. Well, whoever it did or didn't, you clicked yes on my invitation. So. Well, I, no, I, I think I, if I would have asked you to come back in, uh, of course I would have clicked that. Yes, but I, I yeah, because I mean, I don't know. I always think it's like uh, I've always had like an entertaining time arguing with you. <laughs> well, I go. I did this with fakertarians too. Like, I like flounced because like I got mad, and then there's no easy way back in without like just popping back in and being ha ha. Just kidding. So. I don't know. I think it's kind of, there are a few groups where there's like a really fun, um, irreverent sort of grassroots culture that isn't really tied to a specific, um, campaign or, or outcome. And, you know, PRL is one of those fakertarians is one of those. And so I don't know, I feel a little more free to just flounce if I want to flounce and come back in and, say silly things if i want to say silly things i mean hell yeah dude yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man i i think that's that's the fun thing about our group too it can also sometimes be the nauseating thing <laughs> but i mean at the same but it's a fun thing as well you know so it, it's like uh, i think it's, it's good times for me personally yeah it is and i think that we need this because i mean the empire is really brutal and and frightening I mean, I don't know. Actually, I don't. The fear is not like big in my mind, but you know what I mean. Like it, it's there. It's brutal, and it like is making human lives end early every single day. And so, um, this idea that we're going to constantly be throwing ourselves against the monolith, like it does get draining. So I really enjoy having groups where um, we don't have to feel like that. Yeah, it's nice. Like uh, every once in a while, my wife and I will go to the convention. Like when we lived in Maryland, we would go to the main ones in DC. It's nice to just be in a room, a big room, where you just can take it as a given that everyone does not think you should be thrown in jail for doing heroin. Like, it's just a nice feeling, you know? It is. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's most groups I associate with these days. <laughs> if, that's if, true. If there's someone in well, there. Fair, that's because you're in opium dens half the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you got to do what makes you happy. That's yep. right. <laughs> uh what other topics we got, Matt? So I, I think I'm going to jump around a little bit because right. I'm just like get, curious. Get crazy, okay. dude. Okay, so Mike Shipley, okay? So mm. let's say, okay, you had to choose between like Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump. Okay, go, settle down, Jared. <laughs> you have to choose between Donald Trump and Joe Biden because somebody's got a fucking gun to your head. And they're like, you got to pick one or the other. Which one is it? Who would you choose? Oh, man. Um... That's mean. No, no. I mean, dude, we had similar questions. It's a question. 
back right. when Hillary Clinton was running? That is a tough one, just because, like, if you balance it out, like, Trump was really alarming at first. And I remember thinking, God, I guess actually I would have liked, like, I remember at the time being Clinton's exactly the same. She's just as bad. She's a warmonger. It doesn't matter. And then Trump happened. And I was like, wait, holy shit. Actually, like the neoliberal, like norm was like more comforting. I suppose it was the double we know. Right. Mm-hmm. But now we're four years later and like Trump is the double we know. He is, I mean, and, but don't get me wrong. He's still he's like the orange devil. We know <laughs> he's so unpredictable that I don't know whether to say that, like, I'm comfortable enough wanting to go back to the neoliberal devil. Like, actually, that's a really tough choice because um, I think there will be a sense that like, oh, we're saved from the bad orange man. And now um, it'll defuse um, any kind of a sort Criticism of the movement that's arriving on the left. Right. Um, so I can't answer that question easily because what I, the other thing is we don't know what's behind the Biden mask. Like he doesn't appear capable of actually running a nation, let alone. I think he's, uh, I think he's lost it. Do you yeah. But, okay. Like one thing about Biden though, he didn't, he talk about bringing uh Beto in as his guns are. Yeah, I think he did. That is, man's guns have already been confiscated. Oh, uh, see, that's kind of like, and we don't, I think we'll be able to see a little bit more into what might be going on when he picks his vice president, like who was given that promise and starting to hear maybe cabinet names floated around. But, um, you know, if you look at like what happened when George Bush was so alarming to everyone and then, oh, Obama's going to save us. But then all he did was actually escalate the deportations and the drone bombings and um, everyone's lives just got worse. Like, I think it's a big mistake to think that um, just because neoliberalism was the old status quo, that like it's safer somehow than what's really going already going on. So it's difficult because it's it's like it's safer for some people. Right. Like, point two. Um, and yeah, that's what's tough. Like, um, gosh, uh, my son goes to a Montessori school and he, his friend's parents are immigrants. We actually, they had a conversation with us where they had to ask us like, hey, because they're on DACA or something. And it's like, hey, we don't think this will happen, but we have to plan for it. If someone shows up at our house and, you know, we end up getting deported, will you bring our son to us, et cetera? And it's like really alarming shit. You never would think yeah. to hear someone, someone say something like that to you. But um, yeah, it's tough. I, I don't like the question either. I'm, I'm tempted to say Biden, but I don't feel good about it. Speaking of those ca- that cabinet you mentioned where they're floating the names, remember that time when WikiLeaks leaked the thing where Obama, Citigroup told Obama who to pick for his cabinet and he picked all of them pretty much? I do vaguely remember that. Remember that? So neoliberalism isn't necessarily even that benign. It's definitely not benign. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and there's... um. I mean, the thing is that there's been like a, they're, I guess, much better at executing like long term plans. So there's been this decades long unfolding of this sort of global jurisdiction and these trade agreements that are leading up to it. And um, they're just so good at like masking themselves in um, rhetoric that's palatable to centrists. And I think there's something insidiously quite frightening about that. Um, so I wouldn't, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of on board with the like 51% Biden, 49% Trump. <laughs> um, do you guys think I, they'll keep Biden or do you think they'll replace him with somebody? Cause he really seems to be losing it. It's yeah. I mean, like, how could they do that? Like anytime well, I've heard an explanation no. of that, I feel like, oh uh, yeah, it's not going to happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, they keep, now they're saying like, uh, I, I feel like, I feel like the whole, like the whole, like, oh, uh, maybe what if they replace Biden? It's kind of like last time when people were saying, well, Bernie Sanders could win if, you know, <laughs> like, no, all, all they got to do is they got to have him come out and say for health reasons, you know, yeah. I'm not able to go forward. That's all they have to Just do. Pretend and then, that he got COVID and then put, <laughs> they're floating. They keep floating uh governor Cuomo. What if they oh, yeah. like? Yeah, what if they, like, I'm like, what did this guy do? Yeah, I keep like, hearing that. Like, okay, he's in New York. It's like not. It's just 9/11, uh, since, or 9/11. Yeah, shit, like you know? Giuliani over again. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, okay, this guy is 
happens to be mayor during a fucking tragic period where people, thousands of people are dying. But does that make him fit for anything? No, what? I don't I think so. The number of people of a bad flu season so far. I just want to point that out. Well, they've had, I've actually had more deaths uh, in this period than on 9-11. Oh, yeah, I just mean, like, as far as diseases go. Well, what else is causing these deaths? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm there's been, like, 8,000-something deaths. Well, as, as compared to, like, three or 4,000 the month of 9-11. Well, Jared, didn't you see that meme that we shared where the guy's head was, like, rolled over with, like, a fucking... Uh, his, his well, I get like that. I'm just saying, over, how, do you right? account, how do you account for, like, the extra, like, 3x deaths that are happening? Just coincidence? No, I, I'm not. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I didn't say that it was a coincidence. I'm just saying that it's not, so far anyway, anywhere near as deadly as a bad flu season, and we've shut the whole fucking thing down as though it's well, like Black Plague. But I, I'm saying, well, it, I mean, I'm saying it's, it's deadlier than the flu season. At well, least in, 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 the, in the period of time. I mean, it, it, long term, you you might be right. We don't know. Well, yeah, and also, and, and what if they calmed it down some by you know turning things off? Well, of course, there's well, no. That's, that's the problem. Is there's no way that the counterfactual could be proved. It's right. that's the way it's going to be spun. No question. They're going to say either if, like in New York City, if there's a bunch of deaths, they're going to say, well, you know, it would have been worse without the lockdown. If yeah. There aren't very many, like where I live, they're going to say, well, you see the lockdown works. So there's no way that facts will show in any way that this yeah. isn't. And they, and they, you know, some of the people were saying that beforehand, like the uh, the guy I've talked about before that was on Rogan. Um, I think his name's Mike Olsterherm. And he he's part of the um, SIDRAP, which is like, I don't know if they're governmental or not. I don't think they are. I think they're just a private organization. Pro I mean, they're probably government funded like everybody else, but. He was saying, yeah, you know, I mean, if we do this shit and, you know, it works and people will say like, oh, we didn't have to do this shit. <clears throat> I'm not saying I'm I'm not arguing for it. I'm just. I'm yeah, no, I'm just saying it. that there's no way that you can definitively show that I let's yeah. say that they don't like the lockdown. And I could say, well, see, we didn't need it. And they'd be like, well, of course we did. And there's no way to prove yeah. that. Yeah, that's I, true. Yeah, that's true. So, Bergman, what's up next, dude? You get, you get too high again? <laughs> I don't have oh, the board, dude. I don't have the dude. board. I'm at, <laughs> you, I'm at you'll home. Be okay. You'll be okay, bro. <laughs> Got to fill right. that dead air, bro. <laughs> yeah, dude. Okay, so, Mike Chip. <laughs> so, uh, create more of it, whatever you want to do. All right, guys. Okay, so. All right. Okay, so I guess next we'll talk about bernie suspends campaign right so we kind of briefly talked about this last week but it looks like he is going to stay on so he you know he suspends the campaign but he's kind of staying in it and will continue to collect delegates if any like bernie bros want to keep you know wasting their vote um, and harassing apparently people online in racist screeds right. <laughs> right yeah so, you know, I don't know. I don't know what this... Uh, and he, he claims that he wants to have more of an influence at the convention. Um, but what is that really going to mean? You know, what, what sorts of uh, Bernie Bernie uh, policy agendas do we have to worry about? You know, what's going to make it through? What do you guys think? I mean, isn't that like what his goal was um, uh, 2016 and where at the end he ended up trying to get his supporters to vote for Hillary because he said, hey, 80% of what we wanted is in, you know, this now platform and he like held up the papers or whatever. Hmm. And that's our accomplishment of this campaign. And, you know, so vote for Hillary. We're getting 80% of what we wanted. Um, so. Well, isn't that, yeah, I guess we never found out, right? We never found out if right. this would have gotten implemented. So I guess he can come back and say, well, we're trying again. We're trying to yeah. get this time it'll work. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, with um, all the, the, I don't know if you just want to call them socialists, let's go with that, with the Bernie end of the Democratic Party. I mean, they when they pushed through Obamacare, not them, but the neoliberals did, when they got Obamacare, everybody said, 
or on our side, we're saying, geez, this is just a smokescreen. They're going to use this to get Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Well, not what's it been eight years. And uh, it seems pretty clear that the system is, is, has been stressed and broken enough that I don't see how they aren't going to get that within the next few years. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, when, uh, like, I definitely said with Obamacare, it kind of seemed like they were, like, it kind of seemed like they were trying to, like, fuck up the private system so much to where people would be begging for Medicare for all, you know? And they were definitely trying for that. Um, Trump has done some, like, some cool things though hasn't he like he like got rid of, well, the, he got uh, rid of the individual mandate uh, yeah, he got rid of the mandate which, which that, is a big deal well sort of except that if you do that and you don't do any of the if you don't roll back any of the other stuff that they did there's a reason that they did that and it's because if you can sign up for insurance when you're sick then you also have to have a mandate that you can't just sign up when you're sick otherwise you get an insurance death spiral. Like, that's obvious. Um, So the question is, I mean, I live in New York, right? And before Obamacare came through, we lived under Obamacare, basically, because New York had wrecked its insurance market with community rating and um, guaranteed issue, which are two of the biggest things of Obamacare. That was just extended to the whole country. So there's nowhere you can, like, flee to now. But um, I mean, basically, they just handed out a bunch of subsidies for people that so they wouldn't have to pay quite as much for, you know, they wouldn't shoulder it right out of pocket themselves. I, I just I don't see how this doesn't lead to just more and more socialism, because if it's any intervention, right, any market intervention leads to bad effects. And then they intervene to fix those effects which lead to more bad effects and that's how you end up with this more creeping statism and you can see it in healthcare very very easily yeah i mean like it does seem like we've kind of been moving towards you know that way of like the the single payer healthcare mike shipley uh question what do you what do you think about healthcare like what do you think should be done to fix things so ultimately, I think the state should be completely divested of any influence or control over healthcare because human lives are obviously something they can't be trusted with. Um, I think it tells you a lot about the sort of, I don't even know what to call it, the medical industrial complex, or I don't know if you want to call it the insurance cartel or whatever it is. Yeah, I've heard some people call it like the pharmaceutical industrial complex. I mean, it is so giant and monstrous that libertarians are now making a plausible argument that Medicare for all is an incremental step towards liberty. And I just find that so sort of delightfully ironic um, that a monopoly over healthcare by, you know, the most I got called for calling it the most brutal institution ever. So one of the most brutal empires that has ever walked the planet. Um, And that's considered not, I don't necessarily, I don't buy this. Like, I don't think ascribing a positive role to the government in healthcare is like not a helpful logic. So I don't think that painting M4A medical for all as a healthy step towards Liberty is um, helpful but it's really super plausible. Like it actually would scale down a lot of the other like costs and everything that are going around. And that's why you have someone like Bernie who's able to paint it as like, you know, a fiscally responsible thing to do and it's going to save all this money. Um, So I just, um, it's kind of disturbing all around. But I mean, that's that's only even like under their own projections, right? When they say like, oh, it'll save all this money. Like they have from 1965, what they projected Medicare would spend in 1990. And I don't know, it was like $3 billion and they spent like $90 billion. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was something that off, like that ridiculous. So 
whenever they talk about these projections of like saving money or how much something's going to cost, I just have to laugh in their face. Like, what are you even talking about? Why isn't anybody listening? Well, so I guess instead of talking about something I hate and I don't really want and whether it really counts as pragmatic, um, if you think about like what would be a true libertarian quote socialist or whatever you want to call it, um, a completely voluntary um, healthcare I mean, even the word system doesn't, you don't, it's not a system, like we're not going to implement it on you. We're going to get the state out of the way and like, let it rise up from that. But like mm-hmm. doctors are the people that know and nurses, healthcare providers, they're the people that know. So like um, a hospital would be run like a cooperative. The, those workers would be making decisions about which care is, is the most wise. And um, there were actually mutual aid societies in the 19th century um, or even like back before unions got subverted by the state um, when they were, you know, authentic free market entities, or at least quasi so back in the day, um, they were able to meet those needs, um, you know, and we hear all these horror stories about how they were letting grandmas die in the streets and like grandmas are dying now. And if so, but the point is that is actually like proven to work. And the welfare state came along and they started making it illegal. And now your 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 charity has to be a 501c and there's an entire, you know, nonprofit complex around that. And then um, oh, we don't need our mutual aid institutions anymore because oh, the welfare state's gonna take care of every everybody. And and the progressive era really like did a disservice to the anarchist movements that were flourishing at the end of the 19th century, because a lot of this infrastructure was in place at the time. Hmm. So I do encourage listeners to kind of go back and, and look into some of that history because. Um, yeah, there's a, um, um, an essay by Roderick Long, how government solved the healthcare crisis, medical insurance that worked until the government fixed it. And I remember <laughs> reading that. And a while ago and I, yeah it's good I'll, I'll post it in the comments I read a really good book by um, it was I think it was Bob Murphy and the doctor it was an MD was Doug I think it was called his name was Doug McGuff and um, it was ta- it talked about basically all the interventions in the insurance and the healthcare markets which they're not the same health insurance and healthcare are not the same interventions in both of those markets in the last I don't know say 120 years well they talked about when when things first got going when when they really started because before a certain point they really didn't have much in the way of medicine they just they didn't really know kind of what they were they tried but when they started getting like the germ theory and they really kind of had doctors that kind of knew what they were doing in i think it was in the early 1900s all these like you were talking about mike the different um lodges and like the elks and the you know whoever they would have a lodge doctor and and the members could go and they could you know say in current dollars pay them like 20 bucks and then they would provide all this medical care to the members and the and i don't think it was that particular thing but the ama was founded as a union of doctors to try to keep out the ama that the ask me anything yeah <laughs> it's founded in 1900 to keep out <laughs> oh yeah that's right the American Medical Association. Sorry, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> no, no, that that was it. And like that, you know, they they were founded to they they cat they they forced the closure of a huge number of medical schools. They capped the size of the uh, the med student classes, and they instituted a lot of licensing licensure for doctors, which really really cut back the supply of doctors. And here we are. You know, I mean. You know, if you want to open a hospital now, you have to have a certificate of need. And you know what that is? It means you have to go before a board. Yeah, where- like which is which is a, 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 which the board is composed of like people from other hospitals. Yes. And why, why on earth would they want to like bring in another hospital to compete with? Right. Exactly. So when, when anybody says like, oh, there's not enough hospital beds, look at this government crisis. All I can say is, right. yeah, yeah, they, yeah, the free markets failed us. You yeah, know. yeah. No. failing because there's, there's not, not a free market. Yeah. Totally, man. Like Jeff Bezos should be able to bring in like the fucking Amazon hospital, dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, prime, prime healthcare. 
Yeah, dude. <laughs> Private. Right, what is it? Those new stores he has, like the Amazon Go. You just come in, take what you want. And oh yeah, dude. Off. Yeah, it'd be like an Amazon. Drug like, like the hos- the hospital go. Yeah, just come in, take some uh, opiates. Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, dude, it's like the, the I mean, last I'm okay time. I- with it. <laughs> Whatever. Of course you are, you heroin addict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys see me tie it off earlier. <laughs> oh man. All right, what else we got on there, Matt? I don't know, man. I, I think we're, we're we're pretty much through the board, so we can just talk about like whatever the fuck we want to talk about, dude. All right, did we get any? Let me pull up the Facebook, see if we got any comments there, any questions there. Probably should have had that up before, but you know. Yeah, you you probably should have, Jared. That's a good yeah, idea. We like to be prepared on this podcast. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, I, thought we were gonna, I thought Matt. What are you saying, Shipley? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about how I wasn't allowed uh, to- By the way, Shipley, I love your t-shirt, dude Oh, thanks Yeah, that's, nice. that's like so hot, dude Hell yeah <laughs> What were you about to say, uh, Craig? Well, first I want to see what his shirt says It says, it's Ooh. a podcast Oh, nice um, No, I was just going to say I thought we were going to talk about how I wasn't allowed to go to church this morning Oh yeah, yeah. You skipped. Oh over that, shit! Dude. Yeah, we we, What's we, wrong we with you? did. We did. We skipped over that. Okay, so uh, like, first of all, I want to wish everybody a happy Easter, and I want to wish a happy Passover to Jared and the International Banking Cartel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I will extend your well wishes to them at the next meeting. Thank you. <laughs> Shalom. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. So okay, so you you wanted to talk about Easter? So okay, I've noticed a lot of posts today where people are like. Where people are like, uh, you know, kind of like ragging on. Uh, ragging, they were ragging on. They're ragging on the are, government for like preventing people yeah, from going to church. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed a lot of that, you know, um, which like I agree with, you know, like, like that's like you shouldn't prevent somebody from going to church because, you know, that's like your constitutional right. And, you know, aside from the Constitution. It's your human right. What was that? Yeah, it's, it's like your human right. It's your yeah. natural right, you know? Um, but at the same time, I feel, I feel like those same people aren't saying enough of, like, it would be fucking retarded to go to church today because there's, like, a lot of old people at church and, like, a lot of kids running around spreading the virus, you know? So yeah. it's, like, I, I feel like there's there's just there's not a good conversation going on. I think the only way you're ever- – I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously not that successful at this, so I, what the hell do I know? But I think the only way you're going to get to any kind of freer society is if you build up society outside of the state, right? So, like, if you're if you if you're always your default is like everyone's stupid and nobody can handle anything, I feel like there's no, uh, you know, result from that other than oh, we need more government. So, like, I mean, this. So the week before, this is actually a good example. The week before the, the New York state shut everything down, I went to mass early and I go every week and I went and it was probably, it was less than half as full as it normally is. So I don't, and this is not specific to church. I don't know why it couldn't be with any, everything. Why can't people who are either immunocompromised or scared about this stay home and stay away from people? And then people who are either less immunocompromised or less scared of it go to places and socially distance at that same time when, when they're there. Nobody was like, go- I mean, they got rid of, they didn't distribute the cup. So nobody was like drinking out of the same cup. They didn't pass the piece. Like people take steps regardless of government coercion to keep it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Craig, the answer to that is because you can have in this case, COVID-19 for what, 10 days, two weeks before you show symptoms. So you could have it not even know. No, I, I understand that. Yeah. But that, that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that people who have decided that whatever they're going to do for them is important and that sure. they're going to take uh, actions to protect themselves and protect others that they they shouldn't be able to do that 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 doesn't that doesn't fly with me yeah so i think what it comes back to is the concept of reckless endangerment mm-hmm. um i think it's a valid concept i think it would exist even in a libertarian 
legal order or system. Um, now, whether so, you're saying you you would call the Gestapo to the church to shut it down? Um, That's what yeah, I, I think you can use whether COVID nineteen counts. I would leave it to folks who know more about. But isn't know, that very very important? Like, isn't that a very very important? It is. It is. Like, it's very very this? important. It's very very important, and I want to take this shit over to the after hours. Oh damn! Okay. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like <laughs> a little it's teaser like, there. Yeah, like we're running out of time here. So, okay. guys, if you hit us up over at Patreon.com and uh, you contribute a minimum of one dollar per month, you cheapskates, you can you can uh, <laughs> you can you can help us out with more, nah, and it helps it. us pay for like microphones and shit. Yeah, so we decided we, to send uh, a microphone to two of our colleagues over here because they don't have computers. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it, it really it, it tremendously helps like cut the cost of productions and uh, you know just keeps things running over here. Yeah. So, um, you know, also uh, you should check out a podcast uh, called Conversations About Freedom. It is run by Moral Bob, and uh, it's pretty fucking awesome. So, they're actually a sponsor of uh, Punk Rock Libertarians. So. Uh, yeah, you should uh, check them out. Um, I'm sure everybody's got a lot of time on their hands right now, um, as, as do we. You know, we've actually got a, like a couple like really huge uh, guests coming up tomorrow night. Dave Smith is going to be on the program. Yeah, so it's like, we're super excited about that. And then on Wednesday night, Scott Horton. Scott Horton is going to be on the program live. Whoa! So, yeah, it's like yeah. this is the, our biggest week ever. You know? Yeah. Um. And then, you know, uh, like I, I had a uh, great fun tonight. This is like uh, Craig Shute and Mike Shipley's first time ever on the podcast. And I want to say I, I, I would uh, like to have both of you guys back on again if, if you'll come back on again. Sure, that'd be great. Love to. It was really fun, you guys. Awesome. Sweet. Awesome. Cool. All right. So we're going to head on over to the after hours. We also have t-shirts over at libertariancountry.com. Mike Shipley, show me your t-shirt, dude. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So that t-shirt right there. You have to talk so people can see it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So that t-shirt right there. And if you type in the code PRL or the code PRL podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount. Until next time, live free or die. You can't justify killing by economic gain For God, country, and democracy